0: Good morning, church. Pastor Justin here. If you have a copy of scripture, open with me to the book of Psalms. We're gonna be in Psalm 34. I spent the last few weeks looking at several of these Psalms, and part of the reason why is that these ancient poems, the book of Psalms, these, these, these ancient songs written in a foreign and ancient language in an unfamiliar culture still somehow speak so powerfully to us with such piercing relevance to our lives in almost whatever situation we find ourselves in, they give voice and words to our cry. Even now, they help reorient us in seasons of uncertainty and anxiety. These are powerful old songs. They, they, they somehow both commiserate with us in our suffering as well as show us a way out of our suffering. Robert Alter, who's a professor of Hebrew literature uh, in California, he says, part of the spiritual greatness of this book, part of the spiritual greatness of Psalms Part of the source of its enduring appeal through the ages is that it profoundly recognizes the bleakness, the terrors, the long nights of despair that shadow so many lives. And yet against all of this evokes the notion of a caring presence that can reach out and touch the brokenhearted. And of course, Psalm 34 is no exception. Now, the first thing you might notice in your Bibles is there's a note before verse 1. Mine says, in my translation, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and went his way. About 75% of our 150 Psalms have some sort of note like this. It's called a superscription. And a note uh, like this helps to clarify and to provide some context as to what's going on in the story. It gives a, a background, as it were, to what's happening in the psalm. And in this case, this superscription points to a story found in the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the book of 1 Samuel tells the story of a young young King David before he was King David. At one point in the story, uh, and over the course of several years, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel pursued David and wanted to kill him. Now, of course, their story is complicated, uh, but part of the reason Saul wanted to kill David was because he was jealous of him. David was a popular and uh, strong warrior. Uh, There were already stories being told about him, songs being sung about him, and Saul was jealous. There was even a saying uh, that was going around in Israel, and not only Israel, but Israel's uh, allies and enemies. Uh, And the song went like this, that, that Saul has struck down his thousands But David has struck down his ten thousands. So this obviously provoked a a very real jealousy and anger in King Saul. And so Saul was hunting David and trying to kill him. So David, the fugitive, he went from place to place for years, fleeing Saul. And at one point uh, in the story, in in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David decides to hide in a town called Gath. Now, Gath is noteworthy because uh, it's the hometown of a giant named Goliath. Now, you may know the story of David and Goliath. Uh, You know that David is famous for killing and then beheading this famous giant Goliath, even when David was just a young man. And yet still, for some reason, David decides to flee to Gath and hide from Saul, hoping to hide, hoping to stay anonymous, but it doesn't take long before people start to recognize David, that they say, no, this is, the, this is the guy who killed our hero. This is the guy who killed Goliath. And so the servants of the king, uh, they go and find David, and they're going to bring David to the king, likely for the king to behead David, just like David had done to Goliath. But just as David is brought to the gates of the palace, uh, he starts acting crazy, literally crazy. He starts, he, he, he knows what's about to happen. He, he, he knows that the king is there, will, will likely kill him because he knows now who he is. And so he acts like a madman. He, he claws at the gates of the palace. He begins to spit and drool all over his beard. He's just acting crazy. And the king, seeing all of this, says, you got to get this guy out of here. This, this, guy's, this guy's nuts. We have all the crazy we need here in Gath already. The, the, the text literally says, do I lack madmen here? No, he doesn't. And so they let David go. They, 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 this, this sort of clever scheme of David's uh, is successful, and they let David free. But he's still on the run from King Saul. He's still on the run. He's still a fugitive. And so he hides in this cave. And the text says, this is interesting in 1 Samuel 22, that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, they gathered around David in this cave, and he became a captain over them that James Montgomery Boyce wrote that that this is the lowest point in David's life so far. This is rock bottom so far for David. It may get worse for David, but this so far in his life is his lowest point. And maybe in this cave, or maybe later on in David's life, he's looking back on this moment, and he wrote the words of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 says in verse one, "'I will bless the Lord at all times, His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. It says in verse four, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him, they're radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it, experience it. This is something that should be felt. One commentator said, it's so unfortunate when the good gifts of God are swallowed without taste. These aren't just to be consumed, but to be enjoyed. It says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, they have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then in verse 11, it kind of shifts the tone and it says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 15, it says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. And yet the face of the Lord is against those who do, who do evil. We see this language, uh, we saw it in the psalm before, we see it repeatedly, that the, 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 the eyes of the Lord are watching the righteous, he's, he's hearing their cries, but he turns his face against the wicked to cut their memory off from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them, delivers them out of their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. And he ends this way. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Like, so many other psalms. Psalm 34, after understanding its context, uh, is a little jarring, right? It's not what we'd expect. And in a cave at rock bottom, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. My, his praise will continually be in my mouth. If you were here with us last week or listened maybe online, we, we talked about Psalm 33, the psalm just before this one. And the writer, who was likely King David as well, he, he calls his readers to sing a new song. That's the language he uses, to sing a new song, to play skillfully for the Lord. He he calls his readers to work hard at praise, to work at worship, to dig deep within themselves, and to bring gifts to bear, and in this sense, to meditate uh, for a long time on God's goodness, and then to create something fresh and beautiful, to make something in response. And that's actually what David is doing here in Psalm 34. If you read this psalm in its original language in ancient Hebrew, you'll notice that it's an acrostic, meaning that each line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In English, this would be like writing a poem where the first line begins with A, and the second line begins with B, and the third line begins with C, and so on, all the way through the alphabet. That takes work, right? That takes meditation. That takes discipline. That takes It takes time to, to write and sing a new song of praise. Think about this on a practical level. Again, just on a very practical level, think about what David is doing here. Think about how we would respond. Think about, instead of scrolling through the news or social media on your phone and getting depressed and frustrated and anxious, actually learned a new uh, term this week, doom scrolling, right? Have you heard of this? Doom scrolling, where you just just spend your time going from bad news to bad news, and you can't help it, right? And that's all we're hearing. So much of what we're hearing over these last few months is just... um, it's, it makes us anxious, it makes us depressed, it makes us frustrated, we're we get we we're confused even how our friends are responding to certain things in the news. And, and so imagine instead of focusing on this endless list of things that uh, you wish were different, things that you can't control, imagine instead if you sat down and began meditating on the good things of God, the good things that you can see, that you reminded yourself of God's fa- past faithfulness that you worked hard at writing a creative poem or a skillful journal entry about God's goodness and about God's mercy. Maybe you paint, maybe you sing, maybe you uh, maybe you build, maybe you do whatever. But but you work hard and you work creatively at praising and giving gratitude for who God is. Imagine how that might change your attitude. Imagine how that might change your mood or your speech or your relationship with your kids or your spouse or your co-workers that could be completely transformative. David is here in a cave, and he writes a poem about God's goodness. And not only that, but he works hard and intentionally at at each line, so that each line begins with the next letter in the alphabet. I don't think he was just trying to be cute. I don't think he was just trying to be... I, I, I I think he knew. I think he knew that what he needed to get his mind off his troubles, to reorient himself, he needed to invest real time, real prayer, real reflection, real creativity to create this new song. And the result of David's work is this beautiful and beautifully complex Psalm 34. Now, there's, there's so much here that we could get into. Let me just highlight a few things for us now. Many commentators know that this psalm, as we said, is divided into two parts. The first half is a song, and the second half really is a sermon. David transitions from praise uh, to then kind of teaching and instruction for his readers. And in some ways, the hinge connecting these two halves is in verse 12. It says in verse 12, What, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? I think that's kind of a, a, a little bit of a wooden translation. Another translation puts it this way, maybe a little clearer. Do you really want to live? Do you really want to live? Would you would you love a long and happy life? It's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but, of co- but because of course, yes, we all we all want the good life, and that's that's really the question at the heart of the psalm. What kind of life do you want? What really is the good life? That's what we're pursuing, and David shows us something about the good life in this psalm. Now, maybe the first thing to note about the good life is that it's not always good. That's the bad news, church. The good life is not always good. Bad things happen, sickness is real, suffering is real, sin is real. Bad things happen, even to good people, even when we try to do everything right. It's unavoidable, bad things happen. David makes clear, many are the afflictions of the righteous, that's in verse 19. Jesus reiterates this truth in the New Testament when he says in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Now, we, we talk about clinging to the promises of Christ. <laughs> this, consider this promise that bad things will happen to you. Jesus is promising it. The good life is not always good. The good life is not always easy. And of course, David in this moment, he's, he, he, he's not free from all of his troubles. Yes, his his clever plan seemed to work in that moment. He escaped Gath with his life, just barely. But here he is in this cave. Here he is, still a fugitive, running for his life, fleeing from the most dangerous and powerful man in the world. And everyone who's with him is broke and in debt and in distress and bitter. That's his company. And yet David and Jesus both remind us that bad things are going to happen, but they don't have to crush us. They don't have to crush us. That doesn't have to be the end for us. David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, right? That's the bad news. But the Lord delivers him out of all, all of his troubles. Jesus says there in John, yes, you will have trouble in this world, but take heart, church, take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. In other words, in crying out to God, and this is important, in crying out to God, we are not necessarily asking for God to remove all the trouble from our lives, though there are certainly times when that may be our cry. But most often we are asking God to help us deal with or to respond to our troubles. One writer put it this way, we we need help to metabolize our suffering. That's a great way to put it, right? We need help to metabolize our suffering, to to process it, to work through it. That's how you enjoy the good life. Not by avoiding suffering, that's never going to happen, but by learning how to deal with it. And especially learning how to exchange the destructive fears we have about our circumstances for the redemptive fear of the Lord, this this deeper trust in His faithfulness. This is exactly what David is praising God for there in verse 4. Not for delivering Him from from all of His suffering necessarily, but specifically for delivering Him from His fears. That's what he says there in verse 4. "'I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears.'" This is not something that comes easily for us, church. This is not something that comes automatically. This is something that is learned. This is something that takes work and takes practice. As we said, David transitions here from a song to a sermon. He's calling his readers in verse 11. Come, O children, listen to me. I will, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? That's a phrase that's, that's repeated over and over again in Scripture. What does that mean, the fear of the Lord? It helps for us to understand what the fear of the Lord is. Uh, by seeing it in contrast to the fear of man, right? The, the, Proverbs 19 puts these things together. I mean, Proverbs 29, verse 25, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So what does it mean to fear man? I, I, think, I think many of us know what it means to fear man because we live uh, in the fear of man for most of our lives, right? It, it means that we wanna be loved by other people. We wanna be accepted by other people. We wanna be validated by other people. We, we, we seek our meaning from other people and how other people view us and see us. So to fear the Lord means to be content in His love. It means to be content in His acceptance of us, to be secure in Him, not just in our circumstances or even about what other people think about us. It means finding our meaning and our hope in Him, not in anything else, good or bad. It means that being okay with Him is our greatest concern. It means that being okay with him, even when we're not okay, means that we're okay, right? If we're okay with him, even when everything else seems to be falling apart, we're going to be okay. Peter Craigie, an Old Testament scholar, he wrote, The fear of the Lord is indeed the foundation of all good life, the key to joy in life and long and happy days, but it is not a guarantee that life will be always easy. It may mend the broken heart, but it does not always prevent the heart from being broken. It may restore the spiritually crushed, but does not always crush the forces that create oppression. Enjoying the good life means learning to find joy in something greater and more stable than our circumstances. One devotional writer on the psalm says to look to the Lord and be radiant, just as the psalm calls us to, To look to the Lord and be radiant as a result is to walk through life, and I love this phrase, in happy defiance of any circumstantial adversity, sending our lives, our emotional lives, into meltdown. You have God. You are safe. So you have everything. So how do we get there, church? How can we experience, how can we taste and see that the Lord is good? Here are just a few things as we close. I'll make them easy to remember. We need to sing, we need to serve, and we need to submit. Right, Those three things, and we'll see them here in the text. To sing, to serve, and to submit. That's how we enjoy the good life. So to sing, we see here in David, we need to train our hearts to praise the Lord. We need to train our hearts to praise the Lord at all times. We, we talked last week about, about griping and about gratitude. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. In, in the cave or on top of the mountain, I'm going to praise, I'm going to give thanks, I'm going to worship. That means intentionally considering and meditating on the goodness of God. That we look for the Lord's hand in the pain as well as in the pleasure. That we look for his mercy in the midst of our suffering. Job, who is was uh, the poster child of suffering, when, when even seemed like needless suffering for him, when he was reflecting on God's character, he wrote this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You wanna experience the good life? You wanna experience joy in the midst of suffering? Seeing. Sing in the midst of suffering, rejoice in the midst of trouble. So we not only sing, but we also serve. This is a call to a different kind of lifestyle. David instructs us here, watch your mouth, speak the truth, turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it. That's all there in verse 13 and 14. The good life is found in service and obedience. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, commenting on this passage. He says, the good that we enjoy goes hand in hand with the good that we do. There's a kind of life that produces lasting joy, a life of service and sacrifice and generosity that produces lasting joy. And there's another kind of life that produces temporary joy, but lasting despair. That's a life of self-seeking and self-serving, being stingy and cynical. That's not what God is calling us to. This is part of what Jesus means when he says, we'll never find out our true life until we lose it. Well, In other words, we can, only stand, we can only understand ourselves and what we were made for when we stop living for ourselves. And stop. The, the good life is experienced in doing good. It's not just in seeking our own advantage, but seeking the advantage of others, of thinking of others as more highly than ourselves. And so we sing and we serve, but we also must submit to the Lord. The, the, the good life comes at a great cost. It's built to us but it's paid by God. Scripture says there in verse 32 of of chapter 34, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. That means that he He purchases us, he buys us, he He pays for us, he rescues us and how he owns us. We are his, we should submit to him. And this is the point, that the, the good life is ultimately and eternally and exclusively found in God himself, found in submission to our redeemer. Only there can we be free from our shame and condemnation, as he says in the scriptures, not to be crushed by our troubles. Again, James Montgomery Boyce, he said, deliverance here is good. The deliverance that David experienced here is good, but what is essential is deliverance from our eternal punishment that's due for our sins. The deliverance we must look to and is only found in Christ. Verse 22 says, the Lord redeems his servants. Well, how does he do that? By the death and resurrection of Jesus no one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Why not? Because Jesus has taken the condemnation in our place. One devotional writer says that God has demonstrated that he is not a stoic God. He is not detached and distant. But he's, he's not removed from our frailties or from our distress. He hears our cries. In Jesus, God draws near. ear. He, he entered into our brokenheartedness. The Lord knows what it is to be crushed in spirit. He endured everything that we do. He he, he is calling us to enjoy Him, to enjoy Christ, to walk with Him, to look to Him. It's, it's, It's in Him that we can be radiant and glorious. You want to enjoy the good life? Sing to Him in the midst of suffering. Serve one another. Serve your brothers and sisters around you. Serve your neighbors and your family. Serve those you don't like serving. And submit yourself to Him. Understand that he has, he has redeemed you. He has purchased you. He know, he's drawing near to the brokenhearted. He's present with you in your pain. Look to him and enjoy. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that, God, that you have provided an abundant life in yourself. God, it's found in you. And you've done it to such an extent that we can have joy even in the midst of suffering. That praise can continually be in our lips, even, and maybe especially, when we're at rock bottom, just as David was. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. God, we thank you for your word, the truth of scripture. God, I pray that we would be a joyful people. God, we thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.